Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bijou Banter. Uh, we're coming to you in this summer edition because we're all done with classes, but we decided that we're going to keep doing it over the summer because we love it just too dang much. Uh, but today in the Zoom studio, we're missing one of our core team members, unfortunately, because he is moving out of the dorms, uh, which is Matthew Hub. But we've got Orson Kai, Daniel McGregor Hoyer, and me, Calvin Lessing. We're going to be talking about, I almost just listed the movies for next week, not the movies for this week, Mitchell's versus the Machines, and then also Tenet, which came out a long time ago, but we never talked about it. And I really like Tenet. So we'll be talking about Tenet. But first, we're going to talk about Mitchell's versus the Machines, which is a new Netflix movie done by the same people who did uh, Marvel's Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, it's about a dysfunctional family that go on a road trip and then the machines take over the world and they have to stop the machines from taking over the world because through a series of crazy events, they're the only humans left, not alive, but like roaming the earth. Because the plot is that all the humans are like kept in rockets that are gonna get shot into space. Uh, it stars Abby Jacobson, Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, Eric Andre, Olivia Coleman, Fred Armisen, Beck Bennett, Chrissy Teigen, John Legend, Charlene Yee, who most of you won't know, but she was in house and was very good in it. Uh, but it's got a lot of cool people in it. And what did we think? I'm a huge fan of Phil Lord and Chris Miller. They're the ones that produced this. They did like the Jump Street movies a couple of years ago with Joan Hill and Channing Tatum. I think those are hilarious. Those were totally came out of nowhere and blew everyone out of the water because it could have been so terrible, but they were just good. The second one, I think a lot of people could debate, but I like the second one. Anyway, they also did the Lego movie, which again, same kind of thing where you, we saw the previews and we're like, that's stupid. That's going to be terrible. And it was incredible. And, you know, they didn't direct Spider-Verse, but they produced it and they also produced this as well. I think this, what it does well is like blending this animation style where they really like to change things up and kind of, you know, play with like 2D animation and 3D animation, kind of realistic things. So I really like that. I think the story is kind of the weakest point because it's kind of generic. You kind of know exactly where it's going to go. Whereas I feel like when looking at like the Lego movie and Spider-Verse, you can kind of see where it's going to go, but it still had like those twists and turns where this it was just so easy to predict like every single beat. But I think what saves it is like, first of all, it's got so much heart to it. You can totally tell, like, even I was tearing up at them. Like, what's going on? Like, you know, this is crazy towards like the end. And it's just really fun too. I think when like they're thrown down against the robots, I just enjoyed that a lot. And it's got like, you know, a lot of these, like this clever kind of comedy, uh, Lord and Miller really like to inject into their stuff. And I think, yeah, that I really liked about it. Yeah, I... I... I'm always surprised by these guys. Whenever it seems like they just go to the bottom of the barrel, they always manage to find a gem in, in whatever they make. And this is a gem um, because I think the animation is incredibly creative at just as the main character is incredibly creative. I really like the chemistry between the family members. Um, you get really good voice acting from um, Danny McBride and also you get a really good one from, uh, I think her name's Elna Grazier. She was from Broad City on Comedy Central. But yeah, you get really, really good voice acting in this. And I think what is the biggest saving grace of this movie is that its heart is in the right place. Like after the credits started rolling and you see um, all the filmmakers and their family members, um, you really see how this film is really dedicated to families. And you really see that its heart is in the right place. And a lot of the comedic moments are incredibly funny. Like I really enjoyed like the scene in the mall, which I don't think I really want to spoil because I just couldn't stop laughing once I saw it. It was so hilarious. And I, yeah, this is a really fun animated film and 
Phil Ward and Chris Miller continue to surprise me with whatever, whatever they make. I thought it was fine. Uh, I thought it was pretty good, but I like a lot of people have been really raving about it. And I understand it from some perspectives, like the animation is really good. It's similar to Spider-Verse animation, but still different enough to differentiate itself because it's not like drawing from comic books. Uh, and, but I don't know, I thought it was like an above average kids movie and I didn't think it was much else. Like I still reckon it's a little bit like Parasite for me. I know it's good. I recognize that it's good. I just don't get like the, oh my God, you have to watch this aspect to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so those are my initial thoughts. I also thought, and maybe you guys will disagree with this, that it was just too long. Like it's I 100% agree with you on that. That movie was way too long. The scene right after the mall, I was like, all right, we're getting into the third act. And I'm like, there's still an hour left in this movie, which granted, I looked, there's about 11 minutes of credits. So you can factor out, you know, that, but I was so surprised how long this was. This movie easily could have shaved off like 10 to 15 minutes. And I know exactly in my opinion where it is. And Matthew would hate me for saying this. I don't think the Eric Andre character needed to be in the movie. I think it just was there to have a guy that's kind of, you know, maybe it's just because they had Eric Andre and they're like, oh, we'll just shoehorn you in. But like, I just don't think that character needed to be there. You know, you could just have either way, the robots just take over the world and they have to go to, the family has to go to the hub to stop them. But like, he, when they kept cutting back to him, I'm like, this is just kind of a time waster. It just seems like they're just trying to, like I said, throw him in. Yeah, I mean, I think with like all the commentary that's going on, I can kind of understand because this film is definitely, it's obviously doing a commentary on our culture, like a, definitely a pop culture when it comes to technology. And it, it's so obvious, like, you know, where it's going to go. Like the, the phone is going to develop like this very artificial intelligence type thing where it's going to take over the world. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious about what it's going to do um, with that aspect. And I do feel like the movie didn't need to be two hours and 54 minutes. I mean, the credit sequence, that's fine. And I feel like that just shows the filmmakers had their hearts in the right place. But I feel like there could have been something shaved off um, that would have helped it like really be more effective. Because I still like this movie, but it's like it could have just been a little bit shorter. Just to clarify real quick, it's one hour and 54 minutes. If it had been two hours and 54 minutes, I would have hated this movie so much. Um, but yeah, I don't think you could have shaved off the Eric Andre character, though, because I feel like he's where the motivation for Pal, which is the sort of Siri analogous personal assistant, comes in. I really just feel like they could have shaved off some of the sort of prototypical animated movie stuff they had in there. Like they had the like they had the daughter saying that she didn't actually believe the pep talk she gave her dad. And the whole time I was like, oh, that's going to come in later. And oh, so it did. And they're going to not remember that people would put saving the world over reacting to their daughter saying, you know, I just said what he needed to say. And I don't know, like they could have just cut. They could have cut like at the end of the day, like at the 45 minute mark, I thought the movie was wrapping up and then there was more than an hour and 10 minutes left. And I was just like, come on, like it's done. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just like, sometimes I get stuff like that where like you have the main characters really just like, oh, you figured out something very, that was kind of a lie. And then all of a sudden there is kind of like moping and doping. It kind of bugs me a bit. Like it's just, uh, you can, cause you know where it's gonna go. Um, cause even like, even, 
you can kind of argue Spider-Verse, I don't want to say Spider-Verse to the liar reveal thing, but it does do the thing where it's like the characters kind of sit around and mope. Um, but at least in Spider-Verse, like the emotions were there and like the way it was presented was there. And here it's just like your generic family comedy type formula, even though I was, even though it, it did exceed my expectations, it still went over like it still had the same structure that these typical family films have. And even though like, I do like the mess, I do like the message a lot. It just like, it just had to go through a lot of like the typical generic plot stuff. For me, it just seemed like the whole Eric Andre thing, why I said I would have cut that is because, I mean, maybe I missed something or wasn't paying attention, but the reason the robots were taking over was just a notch above just because and they just kind of had him there to be like oh yeah he treated the phone terribly you know in the first act or whatever so that was for me i was like you could just say you know you could show throughout that people are just not really valuing technology and the technology then freaks out but another thing too that i just thought was a little silly and they did a couple times was when they had like the little brother interact with like the girl his age and he would like freak out or whatever and like there's that scene at the end where he like jumps out the window they did that like three or four times and i just thought it was kind of stupid like I don't know. I don't know how everybody else thought about that, but it was just kind of a time waster to me. And like the little boy, just, I don't know, there's just something about it, like something against the voice actor, but it's just that it doesn't, I don't know, there's just something that didn't like make me particularly laugh at the little boy. Um, Cause I, honestly, I found like, even though the chemistry of like the sister is good and I think we should talk a little more about the sister, um, but I just couldn't really laugh at the little boy. And even though it's nothing against the voice actor, but I just felt like it was just your generic um, little boy in some respects. See, I actually found the little boy really funny. I thought like he was sort of prototypical, but he also like exceeded the bounds of that in like very specific ways. Like the fact that he's into dinosaurs, every animated kid is into dinosaurs. The fact that he's so into dinosaurs that he's like correcting the dino stop and has a shirt that has a horrifyingly photoshopped face of his on a dinosaur like I thought that was funny and I thought his interactions with uh Charlene Yee's character uh were who is the sort of younger girl of the other family sorry I keep referring to her by name but I just know her from a tv show I watch um and I feel like their interactions were funny they do do it a lot which is unfortunate but I especially love the ones because he doesn't always jump out the window, but whenever he jumps out the window, it like adds to the effect somehow. And I don't know, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, and in terms of the sister, who's sort of the central character of this, who's going off to who the whole point of the road trip, she's going to California to go to film school. Uh, I thought she was fine. I do feel like this character, so, or not this character, this movie sort of goes under the assumption that personality quirks are character development sometimes. Like a lot of her character just seem to be like, I'm artsy and kind of quirky and I make movies. And it's like, okay, but there's there's more to it than that. No, no, no. I thought it could use the little, like same with the little kid because he was just sort of, I like dinosaurs and then everything surrounding him was dinosaur. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I found interesting, at least in terms of the praise of this film, um, was the fact that the main character um is gay and it's not like saying that this is the first gay character i mean there's been many gay characters but the fact that this is probably one of the first ones i wouldn't say the first one but like we're and at least in an animated film where an lgbtq 
character is the center point of the story. And I feel, feel like that's like where a lot of the praise of this character is coming from because that representation is important. So I feel like that's where, where a lot of like the praise of it. And I think, I think it really did a good job like really keeping it like they didn't, I think they did talk about it at the end, but they actually made it like her personality um, really like they, she had a really good personality and it's really good chemistry with the family. And I think, I also think like having like her being gay actually makes her a little more interesting of a character. But like, I didn't know she was gay until like the end when they just sort of casually mentioned like, are you in what's her face official yet? And they sort of hint towards it at the beginning, but I don't, I don't think it really gets representation points because it never really like represents the community. It's just sort of thrown in there and it's like, it's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's cool that she is gay, but it also, I don't know. It feels just kind of like, like, if at the end of the movie, like a black guy shows up and he's like, hey, and then like he kisses a white woman. It's like, that's awesome. But also like you need to do more than just sort of throw it in right at the end. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that because I was thinking that too. Because I was like, I read an article halfway through the movie that said like, because I looked up, you know, whatever. And it said, oh, this is like one of the first character representations of a gay character in like an animated film. And I was like, she is like and I was already like a third of the way into the movie or something and I was like all right when's this going to come up and it doesn't happen until like the last five minutes and I'm like okay kind of like what exactly what you said Calvin it's cool that they did it but again it just kind of felt thrown in and I think you know what we were just talking about a couple seconds ago with like character development that's something they should have been building upon as to like why there was that draw for her to get to college other than just to be surrounded by friends it was like okay well what if she has a partner there she's like excited to meet for the first time or something so I think that's where they could have done that instead of saying Oh, well, she's just artsy and quirky. Yeah, and her drive, I get her drive to go to college, though. Like, I under, like, that a part of the character development I thought was decently done. It's just, like, I feel like these characters are just sort of Christmas trees that they hang, like, various personality traits on. Uh, so, like, the drive to get to college, I think, is fine because, like, her dad doesn't really understand her. I feel like her mom understands her though. So I feel like it's a little bit strange that she also really wants to get away from her mom, even though her mom is like, let's go, rah, 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 gold sticker, gold sticker, and is hilariously played by Maya Rudolph. Um, but yeah, like they just sort of hang personality quirks. Like the dad is outdoorsy and he knows how to solve problems and is bad at computers. And that's really all of his shtick. And the mom is fierce and proud mother. And that's really it. And I don't know, I just wish they had done more with the characters in that. Yeah, I mean, I think it does definitely have like that simplistic approach to its characters. Um, and I and I could really see the point of that. Um, I think that, but I think that honestly kind of works with the dynamic of the family a bit. Because um, you do have a daughter who is somebody who is technologically active, somebody you know, social media, like we, I think we all practically are engraved by social media at this point. And the father is kind of a Luddite, like he doesn't necessarily have a technological perspective as much more of a natural perspective, but it's kind of nice seeing like all the, that work off 
a bit, like because where you do in the climax when you do see the daughter kind of do little things from the father's perspective and see the father kind of do things from the daughter's perspective. I really do think that does add a lot of dynamic to those characters. And plus, I gotta be honest, I've never been a fan of Maya Rudolph. I mean, she she's a fine comedian, but this is I do have to say this is probably the funniest ever I've ever seen Maya Rudolph. Um I feel like just when the mom goes on her freak out in the climax, I found that to be pretty funny. I've noticed Maya Rudolph, I like her, she's funny, but she's starting to get typecast as like the like adventurous mom character. You know what I mean? Like I've noticed that a couple of times. Like I know she was kind of like that in the Lego movie too, if anyone ever saw that, but like there was like, I feel like there's something else I'm forgetting, but it's just interesting to think about. She's, I think, yeah, she's very funny and a great actress, but I just hope this isn't what she continues to do as she um, starts getting older. Yeah, I hope she's offered slightly better roles because I like this one. And I have to agree with Daniel. I'm not the biggest fan of Maya Rudolph. Uh, I think she's funny sometimes. I think this and her playing Kamala Harris on SNL are probably her peak comedy. Um, but she was she was fine in this. Uh, I also really want to talk about, because um, we haven't really talked about it, the machine apocalypse that goes on, which is sort of the main plot point of this movie is that the Siri assistant is pissed off that people are misusing technology or our Luddites, as Daniel so excellently put it. Um, and so she makes like these robots that go around and have like weird force laser beams and they capture all the people and put them away. And I think that's really where the movie stands apart and is really just fantastic. It's just like, like the action specifically, the action in this movie is spectacularly done. And I like, it is the best action in an animated movie I've seen besides Spider-Verse. And I really hope Sony continues to keep doing this stuff because it was spectacular. Yeah, I think Sony just really found its identity. I mean, for a while, people just kind of considered Sony like these really huge sellouts um, for a while. And like, because I think people just remembered them making like something like Hotel Transylvania or the Emoji movie. And I feel like that, I think once they got Phil Ward and Chris Miller, they really started to defy those expectations of the typical family films. And I'm very interested to see how, what they do next. I mean, I think as long as they keep uh, Lord and Miller aboard, it's really making it look pretty promising for Sony. And I have to say, like, I really enjoyed the animation, like, especially like where um, you see like all those little boxes out there keeping the humans and and having them like float over to that rocket thing that is a very and that, that is a very great visual there's like a lot of great visuals in this movie and I like also how they reference YouTube culture a bit like because I don't know this is something fascinating to me about how you YouTube culture when you ever like find those like YouTube poops or whatever. I mean, obviously, I don't want to lose all my brain cells, but um, I just remember like watching, and there's always something so fascinating about the amount of creativity that is put in to those videos. And it's very interesting how like that creativity is really brought on into the film. And I think that's like an aspect I really enjoyed about it. The plot with the robots to me did seem a little reminiscent of the plot of the Lego movie where it's like, oh, well, the robots are just kind of taking over because of the evil corporation. But luckily, I think 
maybe it was Daniel that said it. It's kind of a simple approach, which I think made it better was it like didn't really try to over convolute and it had a message about you know how we treat technology which I liked and I think the scene that really stuck out for me with the visuals was one like the family's like posing as the robots and they're in the like hover flying thing and they're like going up and like the dad finally learns like oh the daughter said like this kind of mean stuff and then like you know they start falling and it's like flashing lights that are like blue and red I thought that was just those visuals were incredible and also when the robots first take over two at the the dino station or whatever it was that was a pretty cool scene you just really get to feel like it's an apocalypse vibe yeah the scene that really won me over was the scene uh it's after it's just before they sort of get pal and throw her into a glass of water from an extreme height and they're like surfing on robots <clears throat> excuse me they're like surfing on robots and they're like fighting them off with the laser force beams and then the mom comes in riding like an upgraded version of the robot and just absolutely tears everything to shreds. And I also, I really love the design because there's two sort of robots in this. There's the sort of base robot, which looks basically like a robot. Like they look slick, but all robots look slick at the end of the day. And then there are these other robots that are like all black and are made of like hexagons and they are like teleporting and glitching in cool ways. And the moment that I saw those things, I was like, oh, this is a cool movie. Um, yeah, I do. It does fall prey to the thing a lot of things fall prey to, where they have a villain that could very easily kill the protagonist that the people are trying to kill. And they're just like, eh, they'll capture him. And I, I don't know. I found that sort of egregious. I found there were a lot of sort of plot contrivances that were a little egregious. Like at the beginning, they Sonic the Hedgehog it where it starts with them in the middle of the apocalypse and then they're like, before, before I tell you that story, I got to tell you this story. And it's like, just start at the beginning of the story for God's sake. And it reminds me of like that scene from like Robot Chicken, like if nobody's familiar with that, where they, they're doing the Star Wars parody and then they throw um, Palpatine down the shaft and like Pal it pauses and then you have the Who music play and it's like, and so you wonder how I got here. It's it's always it's practically a joke at that at this point. Whenever like an animated film does that, like where you have it at a pretty big moment in the film, and then all of a sudden it like flashes back a few days earlier. I mean that is kind of the, a very cliched thing for one for this movie, at least for one of these movies. But back to like the robots, I found them to be pretty funny. Um, I especially like how uh, Beck Bennett and Fred Armisen really play these ones that are kind of broken, but the family lets them in anyway. It's I found that to be pretty funny. I mean, Olivia Coleman did a pretty good job of her voice acting as the villain. And I didn't know this until I like looked at the credits, but this is just probably the sports fan of me. Apparently the black robots, like the big black ones, the Pal Prime ones, those were played by NBA star Blake Griffin for some odd reason. And I don't know, there was just a lot of neat things that they had with, with those robots and really gave the film a really great sense of humor. Going back to that uh, thing with the Who song, I remember I had a friend a couple of years ago who said like, you know when they always start those movies with like how characters are in a perilous situation and they cue that song, the Baba O'Reilly. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. I don't know where he got that. And then like right after he said that, I started seeing it in movies and I'm like, this is crazy. And it's funny because they should have just put that song in. But it's also funny too, because Conan's in this movie. Did anyone else know that he has one, like one scene and then he's out. And I was like, oh, that's not a waste. But like, I kind of wish he was in it more. It was just funny to see him. And I also like the dude, um, 
from SNL who played one of the robots. I'm pretty sure it was him. But yeah, he's always funny. And Fred Armisen is just great as always. Yeah, one of the things that I really love and also sort of don't like about this movie is how fantastic the cast is. Like every single name, like down to Conan, who was just doing like a flight attendant robot voice for about 10 seconds, is just like all of them are spectacular that I want more of them. Like Beck Bennett voices 99% of the robots. And then Fred Armisen voices just Deborah Bot 5000, uh, which is the name that the robot gives itself after it malfunctions. And I wish, like, I wish Fred Armisen had gotten a voice a few more, or I wish, like, Conan had voiced a few more, or I wish this person did more, I wish that person did more. There's just so much stuff crammed into such a small package that I wish there was more for people. Like, even Eric Andre. Eric Andre, I mean, it's weird that they got him because he wasn't allowed to do his shtick of being Eric Andre. But I don't know. I just... Like, I wish he had gotten a little bit more to do instead of just being like, hello, I'm Eric, not Eric Andre, and I'm going to talk about Pal for a second. Yeah, that's, that's always a thing with, like, these, like, family films of, like, the ensemble cast is that sometimes, like, they can get these really big names, but they play incredibly small ro- roles. Like, you get John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, who are apparently a power couple right now, and they're only in the film for like five minutes total if i'm correct so they're like so then it's pretty it's always something that's very typical about animated films like this is that they include these very big names and then all of a sudden they're just only in it for a few minutes um and i don't know it would have been interesting to kind of see that other family in there too or i don't know there could have been much more of a dynamic i guess but i think where the plot is like with just the Mitchells in general, like it's, I think that is enough to really win an audience over. Yeah, the cast didn't really bother me because of how many like A-listers and B-listers in it. I think for me it works because it's animated, so you're not really seeing them. And I always, you know, those kind of movies try to cram in as many uh, people they can get. Whether it's like the Conan thing where it's a quick 10 minute thing or like Danny McBride is the main character. So yeah, that doesn't really bother me. Maybe if it was live action, it would, but yeah, I liked it. Yeah, uh, we're almost out of time for Mitchell's versus the machine. So, so final thoughts. I think it's a pretty solid entry. I don't think it's as good as Lego Movie or Spider Verse, but I think overall for what it is, I enjoyed it. It's a little generic where you kind of know exactly where it's going to go. It's probably about 10 to 15 minutes too long, but I think what really saves it is the heart the movie has, the message, messages, I guess, the voice cast for me personally. And just kind of how fun it is. I had a fun time while watching it, even though there were a couple of times where I was like, how much longer do we have left? But I'd probably give it a seven out of 10. Yeah, uh, The Mitchells versus the Machines is a very fun film. And I think whenever you have Phil Ward or Chris Miller um, producing, I feel like you just have a, a lot of expectations to live up to and they continue to exceed my expectations. Although I wouldn't consider this to be like, their funniest film like 21 Jump Street um but I would it's still a very fun film I it's a really really good voice cast really good animation and it does have its heart in the right place and I probably give it a seven out of ten I uh, I think the scene that really epitomizes it for me is there's a scene where the main character is sort of being suspended in the air uh, and talking to pal and pal's like give me one reason why humans are decent and not the power of love or anything like that which good line um but 
And then she goes on to list this whole spiel about family and how important family is. And it's like really like beautiful is not quite the right word because I do think it's a little bit cliched, but it's like really well done. And there's a lot of heart pumped into it to keep using that word, I guess. Uh, and then like, it's really beautifully animated cause she's trapped in like this force field that's all cool and it looks spectacular. And then the scene ends with a sleep mode joke on the PAL machine. And I feel like if they had just steered away from the more sort of obvious things and gone more into its uniqueness, it would have, it could have stood with Spider-Verse a little bit more and not to just compare it to Spider-Verse, but it's a Sony Pictures, other big, big thing. Uh, but yeah, I thought- like, Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, it seems it went more for like the joke route. Whereas you kind of look at the Lego movie where it had that same kind of situation where, you know, president business and, the Chris Pratt character and they're talking and then they're like making up and you also flash into reality when it's Will Ferrell and the kid kind of coming together. It didn't go for the joke. It went for them like bonding. And I feel like that's where this one kind of missed it where it was just like, we're going to go for the comedy instead. Even though it does have its heart, like heart filled moments. Exactly. But yeah, I'm going to give it a solid eight out of 10. It was pretty, pretty solid. Uh, I'll probably watch it at least one more time in my life. But yeah, that'll wrap up our conversation on the Mitchells versus the machines. And now for the really fun bit, we're going to talk about Tenet, which is Christopher Nolan's newest movie as of when this came out. It's 2020, not 20, it came out in 2020. It's directed by Christopher Nolan. It's written by Christopher Nolan. Starts John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, uh, and a couple other people that are always in Christopher Nolan movies like Michael Caine, and is about uh, two like secret agents of an organization that hasn't been founded yet uh, that are trying to stop like time it's very complicated but there are these things called there's a way to invert time in an object so that it moves backwards through time instead of forward and they're trying to stop people in the future from making that happen to the entire planet because of climate change at the end of the day the plot isn't going to make sense until you watch it so you should probably watch it first if you want simply because it is impossible to describe but what 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 do we think I'm probably going to drop maybe the hottest it takes. It's fine. It's not like anything special. Like I heard it was, I think it's just one of these movies where like Chris Nolan, like, obviously, you know who he is. Everyone knows who he is. He always gets like uh, butts and seats when he has a new movie come out in theaters. And I think this was one, maybe it's because the pandemic, but it was just underwhelming for what it was when it came out, even though it was like the first big blockbuster to release. I think it focuses too much on trying to be like not artsy, but like over convoluted with like Christopher Nolan. I don't want I want to be careful with how I word this, but like, just trying to throw a lot into your face like he's trying to get everything out and he's like this is not like how i can be and he's like trying to throw like oh time twist or like oh this character is actually this character or whatever and i thought for me personally it was just kind of like yeah that's too much of an overload for my brain and i get it it's one of these movies where you have to go back and watch it a second time to like get it more but i don't know if i want to it's like two and a half hours long that's a long movie and if it's a movie that like makes me mad because i didn't get it then like why would i want to sit through it again so i think it's got like, some really uh, enjoyable aspects like John David Washington and Robert Pattinson. They're really good in it. And some of the time travel stuff is really cool and how like, you know, that was all kind of done practically. But yeah, I was just, I left kind of angry. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge, huge Christopher Nolan fan. I mean, I watched every single one of his films and usually I, I enjoy a lot of his movies. I mean, probably my favorites would have to be Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk and the Dark Knight um but with this film 
Um, this one was kind of where I would consider it to be the weakest of no one's um, filmography. Um, and I don't think it's necessary because of the um, ambition that he had, because I do like a lot of the visual effects. Like I actually did watch a video on like how the visual effects were done. So it wasn't just editing that played a role into it. There's a lot of things that played a role into the visual effects. And I think that Oscar was very well deserved. Um, and I do like a lot of the other technical aspects, like the cinematography is incredibly good. The production design is very stellar. Um, and even the acting is really good. I mean, John David Washington did a really good job. Robert Pattinson probably stole most of the scenes. Elizabeth Debicki really did good. And even as stereotypical as a character was, uh, Kenneth Branagh was actually somewhat intimidating as a villain. But I think the main issue with this film is that it is kind of a, a style over substance type film because the plot is incredibly convoluted. Um, and yes, that is with most Christopher Nolan films. It's been like that ever since following. Even though you can argue following wasn't that convoluted, it still told a lot of things out of order. I mean, it's, it's always been a Christopher Nolan staple at this point. But for some reason, there's just a lot of things that are really hard to latch on to in terms of story. And I know a lot of people have, I know a lot of people have beaten this dead horse, but the sound design is not that great. I mean, I wouldn't say it didn't bug me that much, but whenever characters are talking or going over certain plot points, you have Ludwig Gorenson's score kind of blaring in your ears. And it can be a little bit distracting and can take a lot of people out of the film. For me, it did take me out a couple of times, but I've still expected that type of sound design from Christopher Nolan. I mean, he did it with Interstellar and he did it with Dunkirk. Um, I just feel like sometimes if the music was toned down just a bit, I feel like we would have been able to follow the film a lot better. But otherwise, I still I don't think it's the worst sound design. Um, because I do like it when a gun is fired and you really feel that gun being fired or when something explodes, you really feel it explode. Like I really enjoy that aspect and the music is still good, but I feel like if they just toned down the sound a bit, I feel like I would have been able to catch a lot of things um, that people weren't able to catch. But I would say I like this film, but I just don't consider it as good as like his other films. This movie was fantastic. Uh, for those of you who have uh, listened to it, this was my favorite movie of 2020. Spectacular. It is by far and away the coolest thing that I have ever seen on a movie screen. Like the whole sort of visual effects concept behind it is watching things go backwards and forwards at the same time. And literally every single thing that you could ever possibly think of, oh, that would be cool to see it go backwards. They do it from just like picking something up to a boat moving backwards through the waves to like buildings exploding and imploding simultaneously because they're doing a temporal pincer maneuver, which is the coolest idea for anything that anybody has ever come up with. Like every single thing looks spectacular and the visual effects, if it hadn't won the Oscar, I would have sent them a sternly worded email because they would just be objectively incorrect about that. And it's just spectacular. Uh, I'll get into some of the things that some people say are flaws later, but I do think this is in sort of the upper echelon of Nolan's uh, filmography. Personally, Daniel, I think I'd have to disagree. I think Inception is probably his worst movie, like which is saying a lot because Inception is still a fantastic film, but it's like the simplest 
and I feel like it's very overrated. Like it's everybody says Inception is complicated. Inception isn't complicated. There's three dream layers. You go down the layer, time lasts longer. Now this, this is a complicated movie because you got temporal pincer maneuvers, people trying to send things back from the future so that they can get it in the future. You've got reverse entropy and time styles. And the fact that one of the main or one of the main characters, Robert Pattinson, knows John David Washington's character before they actually meet. Oh my God, I freaking love this movie. That was one heck of a hot take. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't think making it complicated necessarily makes it good. I mean, but I do like the. I do like the idea of conversion. Um, that is a really good aspect of it. Um, but I feel like what comparing this and Inception is that um, I feel like the only issue, like, and also this is a big issue with the film itself, apart from Elizabeth's, the Becky and maybe, maybe Kenneth Branagh's character, that the characters are pretty much um, one note a bit, and that and that is very um, prevalent in a lot of Christopher Nolan films. I mean, Dunkirk was that way, and you can even argue that inception was that way but at least like there was a lot at least in terms of what there was there was some character given to them despite not knowing the past or the development of it of these characters and i feel like that's probably the thing that I, a lot of people are going to be looking at whenever they're seeing this film is that you we can't get into these characters and i feel like that's the thing that does lose the investment a bit even though the ideas and the science like in a lot of like the time time inversion stuff is pretty incredible like i really enjoy a lot of the time inversion stuff and but i just do feel like that if the characters were a little bit more interesting or at least gave us something to latch on to i feel like there would have been a lot more to really digest with this film, but I still enjoyed it. It's just that personally, as like a Nolan fan, um, I just would can I wouldn't consider it the weakest film, but I do consider it to be like a little bit lower than I would say. Maybe it's right under. I don't know where I rank it, but I know it's not. I know it's higher than Insomnia and Following, but I wouldn't consider it as like say great as Dunkirk but that's just me. But I do, I do understand your um, opinion, Callum. I'd say for me personally, I just watched Insomnia for the first time earlier this week. And I like that a lot. The only film I haven't seen of his is Memento. So I have to check that out soon. But yeah, for me, this was pretty weak. I thought I just watched Interstellar recently too, for the first time. And that was another one where I thought that was more longer than it was confusing. Like Interstellar is like more than two and a half hours long. It did not need to be that long. But at least I could kind of understand what was going on where this I felt like the length could be justified, but like I just wish yeah the characters were way more compelling than they actually were, because then if I liked them more, I would have been able to latch on and be more engaged with the story. I have to disagree with the character thing I under like they are sort of more one note but as a guy who has seen every single James Bond movie for better or for worse like from these sort of spy thriller action movies i've come to expect less character development than sort of like in james bond like you don't expect james bond to grow as a character he has like a fun personality trait 
And you're just like, yeah, James Bond. And then you go with that, uh, which I realize is sort of contradictory to what I said in Mitchell's and the Machine. So that's probably something I need to analyze within my own opinions of film, but that's for another day. Uh, but in here, like, I feel like there's enough to grab onto besides the characters that the characters are in service of the plot. And I realize that a lot of people when they criticize films say that the characters are in service of the plot. I think that's fine as long as the plot is interesting enough. And in this case, the plot is definitely interesting enough. And I understand that it can be a little hard to follow. Like I've seen it twice and I've read the script once and I still have issues figuring out exactly what's going on, especially the part in the middle where there's a car chase and they're going through it. And for the first half, it's in normal time. And for the second half, it's in inverted time. And it's like, I don't understand what's going on there, but it's still really fun. And I, I feel like the thing, I feel like Christopher Nolan knew that it was gonna to be too hard to follow. And I really respect this right out of the gate. Like the first time he shows you time inversion with someone like picking up a bullet by it falling into their hands. Um, he like the main character, that, or not the main character, the character explaining to the main character says like, don't think about it. The more you think about it, the less sense it'll make just go through it and feel it. And even though that is sort of a cop-out, watching the movie, I think that's absolutely right. I think you can't go into it thinking like, I'm gonna figure out exactly what's going on. The first couple of times you watch it, you have to just be like, time inversion, things go backwards and it's fine. If you start thinking about it, even like picking up a bullet by having it fall into your hands is incredibly complicated and brings into question all kinds of things like free will and where the origin of the action takes place. And if time is linear or if time exists in some sort of weird wibbly wobbly ball like Doctor Who says, and it's, it's just so fun. I love it so much. I will say though, the acting wasn't very good. I thought the acting, especially from John David Washington felt a little bit hackneyed at times. Uh, I felt like he wasn't quite in a space where he could play a suave super spy quite yet, but uh, I don't know. I thought he was sort of the weakest link in terms of acting. Robert Pattinson and everybody else was great though. And he was still good. Yeah. John David Washington was okay. He, for me, I mean, you know, comparing his performances in this and Malcolm and Marie is kind of unfair, but he just kind of, I hate to say it like this because he is a good actor but he just needs to keep breaking through a little bit, like pushing himself. He feels very robotic to me, if that makes sense. Like it doesn't feel like there's a lot of emotion coming from him. And I mean, even though he was screaming his lungs out in Malcolm and Murray, there still just felt like that roboticness, like that barrier that I feel like he just really needs to break through to be like this compelling actor like his dad. He is very much of a blank slate. I mean, his character's name is literally literally the protagonist um so i think this is like one of those films that you, you gotta probably like watch like most known films you gotta watch more times to actually kind of get why he, why he's kind of like that but i feel like that's kind of where no one is trying to immerse a bit is that this is not a very dynamic main character but you i think you trying to make you feel like you're in his shoes because a lot of the film is from his perspective um but yeah i mean i do kind of agree that they that there could have been a lot more moments where we do see a lot more of the powerful acting from david washington because i mean let's face it the guy already has big enough shoes to fill with his father but um with his father denzel but it's just like I feel like there will be more break 
through roles for David Washington in the future. But I do can I do see like where you guys are coming from. Yeah, and I don't I don't know. I don't like comparing him to Denzel Washington just because I don't like comparing people to their parents in the industry because that feels a little bit like feels a little bit unfair. But I do think he's carved out a sort of niche enough existence aside from that and he's getting big like he was in black clans and he was great in that uh even though we all sort of different opinion on malcolm and murray uh he was good in that uh at least i think we all agree he was good in it even if we didn't like the movie um and he's good in this too he's just like he's just not quite suave enough to be james bond and i feel like nolan was trying to make a sort of new version of james bond with this that didn't quite make it there uh, him being called the protagonist is absolutely hilarious, though, and nobody will ever be able to convince me that it's deep or charming. It's just funny. He's definitely my top choice if they're going to do Green Lantern. I actually think he'd be pretty good at that, and I know he's kind of like, I don't know, I'd be up to it, but if they ever make, I think they are making Green Lantern stuff, like a TV show and a movie, they should hit him up, because I think he'd be really good. He'd be great as Green Lantern. Uh, I also, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that, like, one thing I really do want is a sequel. I think that'd be kind of interesting. I know, like, Nolan only did the Batman sequels, but that's because it's Batman. But I think this could benefit from a sequel. And maybe if Nolan looks at, not the backlash, but the criticisms that, like, it's hard to follow. If now we kind of know where it's going, that, like, John David Washington kind of becomes a mentor to Robert Pattinson. If they go forward with that, I think would be kind of a possible, like, cool alley to explore. Yeah, I mean, I think basically Nolan, I mean, at least with the Dark Knight trilogy, like he's he's somebody that doesn't really seem that big of a fan of sequels, despite that trilogy being great. Because um, he is like one of the, probably one of the biggest studio directors that does have like more control over his content than any director we, we've ever seen. Because he produces the film, he directs the film, he writes the film. He's practically somebody that I think a lot of people really want to follow in the footsteps of because, you know, I want to make big studio films, but I also want to have that control over. And that's, and you can tell whenever you see a Chris, whenever you see a trailer, you, you, you know it's a Christopher Nolan film. But I don't think he's necessarily interested in making like sequels per se, but it would be interesting to see if he would want to make a Tenet sequel. But sometimes, I mean, Nolan sometimes like is as a very is an is the defining um exp, not my memory phrase he is practically the definition of auteur um because he he does have a certain style that he just sticks with and he's able to have that con creative control over a lot of his content and so and it's kind of funny that he also is somebody that doesn't really keep up to date on the times like he apparently is, he doesn't use a cell phone and he only has a flip phone sometimes, which is kind of interesting to say the least. But I feel like Nolan, I feel like he's just one of the big go-to studio directors and it will be interesting to see if there would be a tenant sequel, but I don't know if he would ever approach it. I really hope he does one. I know John David Washington has come out and said that he'd want a tenant sequel. Uh, and even if Christopher Nolan doesn't do it, I'd be down. My only worry with it is Tenet sort of perfectly escalates 
the time inversion because it starts really simple and gets proceedingly more and more and more and more and more complex until you're just like watching landmines go off in reverse and you're like yeah that makes sense um i just i don't quite know where it would go i mean i would i would just pay to go into a theater and watch things go backwards for two hours and then i'd be like yep take my thousand dollars but i don't know i feel like it's going to be hard to one-up the third act of tenant because that's the bit for those of you who haven't seen it there's like an all-out war going on where half of each army is going backwards and half of them are going forwards and people are dying in reverse and forwards and people go in and out of the time styles like constantly and there's like oh my god it's so hard to follow but it's so fun every single time uh i don't know i really do hope there's a sequel yeah i don't know if like I mean, cause this, this film, like every Christopher Nolan film after Batman Begins does have a certain size and scale to it. Like, cause there is such, there is such a scale to Tenet. And I feel like, a, I don't know if like Warner Brothers is willing to do a sequel with that because, you know, Christopher Nolan has such a control over his content. And plus, obviously we, we heard the news that he did leave Warner Brothers um, after Tenet's um, failure at the box office and HBO and Warner Brothers releasing their movies onto HBO Max once they hit theaters. Um, so it will be hard to know whether or not there would be a sequel and whether it would be a Christopher Nolan. And I feel like if, it, if they did have Christopher Nolan to direct the sequel, I feel like it would probably help the first film a bit to at least, you know, try to, I mean, top itself a bit. And I feel that if they didn't have Christopher Nolan, this film wouldn't have been, wouldn't, wouldn't have had um, the recognition that it did. Which that kind of leads to my next question, which I don't know if we're allowed to specifically mention how much it made. It's not price-wise, because we're not saying this is how much something costs. We're just saying what it overall was. But like, just looking at it, I'm surprised, you know, you do have to factor in a pandemic that, you know, prohibited a lot of people going out, especially when it came out, but like, still, maybe this is just one that I know Christopher Nolan had, you know, the fascination of wanting to see it in theaters, which I actually will say, Tenet is a movie I feel like you had to have seen in theaters to like understand it, whereas I watched it on my iPad. But like, I, I feel like, I don't know if this would have done better if it had come out, you know, now or like, you know, two years from now when like COVID isn't really a thing anymore, because I'm not saying it would have joined the billion dollar club, but there are people that are like, it could have. And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like this is one where like, it was just going to be a word of mouth thing where it's like, if you didn't like it, you weren't going to go see it. But if you did like it, your friends might've gone to go see it. So I don't know what your guys' opinions are, but it's interesting to think about. I think it definitely, I don't think it could have broken the $1 billion mark. I think that's pretty optimistic for a Christopher Nolan movie with mixed reviews when Dunkirk did Dunkirk break it? I don't think Dunkirk broke it. And that had pretty spectacular reviews. Um, but I feel like it would have done much better. I feel like it definitely would have made a solid profit just because like it's a Christopher Nolan movie and it's very much sort of an event type movie where you want to go see it in theaters because at the end of the day, I've seen this on a TV and I've seen this in the theater. You watch it in a theater. That's really the coolest way to do it. I'm going to watch it in a theater like the next opportunity that I can just because it's so spectacular on the big screen. It's still fine on a small screen. You just don't, when the building explodes and implodes at the same time, you, you lose a little bit of something, but I don't think it could have broken a $1 billion mark. I mean, I think with me, it's like, I'm like, I am 
like I said, I was, I'm a huge Nolan fan and I think I am like on the same page as him where it's like, yeah, his films are meant to be seen in theaters. Like it, I was very reluctant early this semester when I had to write a paper on Dunkirk to go watch Dunkirk on my TV because it just diminishes the quality of the film if I see it on a TV. And I feel like if this film was released after COVID, it would have been more successful but I'm not sure how much that would like complicate budget-wise. I mean, obviously we're not allowed to talk about financial stuff on here, but I know for the fact that with a lot of the finances that went into this film with like marketing, it would be really tough to try to delay this film any further because it probably would have been much more expensive than it already is, which is going to be part of the thing to watch for 2021 films because a lot of them were delayed in 2020 and it's going to be interesting to see if they could break even at the box office once they're released. And I feel like a tenant is probably just like a good example of like why sometimes it couldn't, even though this is something that's meant to be in the theaters, it's like sometimes it's like the wrong time to put in the theaters, even though it was mildly successful um, and just wasn't able to break even. Um, and it probably was like his lowest grossing film since insomnia i think so but it would be interesting to see if like if this was released next year at least this year if it would have broken if it would have made a lot of its money back but we'll never know i do think it would be cool if they did a re-release though just because they released it at the worst possible time and things with any luck are starting to clear up a little bit. And so to re-release it now, I think would be perfect. It would also give me another chance to see it in the theaters. So I wouldn't complain. Um, so I, I think that would be really cool of them. But yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, we're not quite almost out of time, but we're getting there. Is I wanted to talk about uh, what Daniel mentioned earlier, which was the score and how some people are complaining uh, about like the sound design in this film. And I have to wholeheartedly disagree. I just want this on, on public record. I do, I understand where people are coming from. I get that like the score is a little bit loud but I watched it on my TV with subtitles and anytime I couldn't hear what the people were saying it was exclusively like ornamental dialogue like anything that they were saying had already been covered and or it was just like this is the art gallery and hello my name is Joe and it like totally superfluous and I feel like I understand the problem with the sound design of the dialogue being too quiet when you are watching the action scene or like when the action scene, when you balance it for the action scenes, the dialogue is too quiet. But if you balance it for the dialogue, the audio is too loud. I get that. The score thing, Christopher Nolan needs you to hear something. He's going to make sure you hear it. I feel is the end, the be all end all of that. Yeah, the score didn't bother me as much. I Maybe it's again because I watched it on my iPad and not, you know, a giant duplex theater with like millions of dollars of worth of equipment that, you know, is meant to project these kind of movies, but yeah, it didn't, yeah, it didn't bother me. You know, there are a couple of times where I'm like, oh, you know, it's a little hard to hear, but overall I was kind of surprised. I was like, this is just moderate to mild of like difficulty hearing what they're trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I think with, I mean, it, I, it wasn't as bugged by the sound design when I first saw it, or even when I saw it my second time, even the third time last night, I wasn't that bugged by it, but it is kind of obvious that there is a growing issue with it that it is hard to hear that dialogue and and yeah it's Christopher Nolan it's gonna be a booming loud film 
I mean, it's going to make you feel like you're in these locations. I mean, that's just the beauty of sound. It's like sound, while visuals make you see what's going on in the story and make you admire what's how it looks, the sound is a big part of trying to immerse you into that film's world. And even though I was immersed into like this world of Tenet, which is a very incredible world, um, it is that sometimes like if, if just a little bit, they could have turned it down a bit, even though I would say Gorenson did a pretty good job filling in the shoes of Hans Zimmer, because that is a really tough composer to really fill in the shoes, because I think Zimmer was working on Dune at the time, so he couldn't necessarily um, score with Nolan. Um, but I do feel that if it could have just been toned down just a bit so we could hear a bit of the dialogue, because, I mean, obviously TVs, like we do have the captioning, but movie theaters don't have that captioning. So it's going to be interesting to see how over time this criticism of the sound design will be seen, because we, we do we, we do know we do now have closed captioning to kind of help, especially with the ones that are hearing impaired, but I Hope, hopefully um, over time, like the sound design will be seen as like the biggest flaw of this film. Yeah, and unfortunately we're almost out of time for Tenet, so final thoughts. I think it's okay. It's like I said at the beginning, it's one of those ones where I was just kind of upset that like I didn't understand it and it just felt like Christopher Nolan was like purposely trying to confuse me so you can just keep watching it over and over again. But it, you know, there's some cool elements about it. Like the time travel stuff is really cool or like the rewind stuff, but I, in my opinion, it's just one of Nolan's weakest films. And I think maybe he should just stick to making his plots a little more simple than like being super convoluted and confusing, but visually it's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, I think it, it maybe it's maybe one I'll revisit every couple of years, but for the time being, I, I think it's just okay. And I, I'm going to give it a five out of 10. Um, with me, I, as as a big of a fan of Christopher Nolan, I am. Um, I do consider this to be one of like his weaker films. Um, and but then again, that's saying a lot. I'm not really saying that's like saying a lot because he has a lot of great movies. I mean, I think I there's never a film I hated Christopher Nolan. This one I do not hate. I actually like this film. Instead, if it could have had like a much more, and the story wasn't so complicated, and the characters were a lot more, um, like intriguing. Um, I feel like this would have been a uh, been up there if I can restore Dunkirk or Inception, but as it is, I st I still was entertained by it. The visual effects are incredibly good. The technical aspects are great. Christopher Nolan really brought in his style with this one, like he does of all his films, and it's still pretty amazing that he's able to control a lot of his creative content despite being under big studio names. And I wouldn't mind watching this again. So I'd probably get this one, which is probably the lowest I've ever given a Nolan film, an eight out of 10. This is a solid 9.5 to a 10 out of 10 for me. It's not quite the 11 out of 10 that is Dark Knight or Interstellar, but it's still sort of in his upper echelon. Uh, I don't like comparing it to Insomnia because I have a very special spot in my heart for Insomnia. So I'm just not gonna compare it to Insomnia. Uh, it's really cool. It has some of the coolest things I've ever seen on a movie screen, which I already mentioned. And it's just fun. Like every time I watch it, I have fun, which is saying something because I've experienced it three times so far and I still want to keep watching it. So yeah, that'll wrap up our uh, discussion for this week. But be sure to tune in next week if you want. Where we're having a week full of the dead, uh, which is 
only half true. We're doing Army of the Dead next week and Those Who Wish Me Dead, which is the new Angelina Jolie action thriller. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it looks good. And we're going to talk about it. So until then, I've been Calvin. I've been Orson. And I've been Daniel. We will see you all next time. Bye-bye.